My name is Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I am Jean Lewis. And welcome to I Don't Know Why We're Doing This, where we stick to the list for better or worse. This week we have gone into another late 90s action film directed by Stephen Summers, starring Brendan Fraser. It is The Mummy. But before we get into talking about that, first I want to do a minute silence for our fallen streaming service, Quibi. We're not going to do a minute silence, because that's not good on a podcast, Harley. It, it, it is bad audio, so I think we're going <laughs> to... We're going to shorten that like they did the episodes on Quibi. It's the honourable thing to do. It's, that whole thing was just such a disaster an idea from the very beginning. I don't understand. Do you want to plug in the funeral march? Yeah, do that. Do that. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't understand how so many people signed onto that thing thinking that it was going to be the next big thing it's sad to see some, money it's it is sad to see such a unique creature die i is think it? no there's a level of it's sadness sure it's unique but it. it's sort of like a frankensteinian abomination kind of unique it's like something that's offending the eyes of god still it's a bit sad you know so so is kratzenberg the victor frankenstein in this metaphor well, I don't think he ever came to hate Quibi. No, no, no. He never came to hate Quibi. This is more... It's a Frankenstein that was loved to death. Quibi never snuck into his honeymoon suite on his wedding night and killed his wife. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't kill those... Uh, that family of villages. No. Well, the monster didn't kill that family of villages either. He got ran out of town and he just left. He took out all of his anger on the people around Vector. I know that they are talking about selling off their catalogue of stuff to another service and maybe editing all of the smaller episodes back together into a two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour film that would, like, give whatever streaming service acquired these this catalogue, like, an automatic, like, two dozen films, along with a few others yeah. that are already in the pipeline. So who are your bets as to who is going to snatch them up? Amazon or Netflix. I have my bets on Amazon. It it seems like yeah. this sort of shrewd business decision Amazon is really capable of doing right now. I could see Apple though, just because of the the general yeah. like um, tech background of a lot of the people involved, and mm, Spielberg being part of the the seed money. Spielberg's already in with Apple yeah. on Amazing Stories. They would always already have at least some kind of relationship with Apple because of the phone-centric nature of Quibi. In any case, we'll see what happens. First, we're going to get into what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? Sure thing. I actually have an announcement to make at the top of the show here, just regarding some list-related things. I did some calculations this week to see how much on track I was to finishing the movie part of the list in the time that I was hoping that I would, and I was not at all. What I was hoping would be maybe 10 years from now was actually looking more like 20. So I have altered the manner in which I watch movies on the list. I'm not I'm not changing the way that movies are on the list. I'm not removing any movies from the list, but I am changing the way that I watch them in that I am no longer restricting myself to one movie per night. And I'm no longer making myself watch all of the special features. Just the bits that I'm interested in. That is smart. That is smart. 
You never should have had the special features thing there to begin. I have obsessive compulsive disorder, Sean. <laughs> this is a big step for me. I know this is a big step for you, and I'm very proud of you. I'm going to give you a gold star next time we see you. It does seem the responsible decision, because depending on what movie you've watched, <laughs> the special features could be like 40 hours. Yeah, and then exactly. it's like, I'm interested in like the production stuff and the filming stuff, but I've never been that interested in like how they did the previs and how they did the CGI and all the computery stuff. So there's that element mm. of it. I've done the calculations and that should get me somewhere between an extra 70 and 130 movies watched per year. So if I do if I do that, then we're looking at probably not back to the 10 years from now that I was hoping for, but maybe 12 or 13 years from now. See, and the interesting thing is, you've done this at just the right time, mm. because you're very soon going to hit Lord of the Rings. And, as we all know, all of the special features on those things are a film of their own. Well, I am very soon going to hit the Pokemon franchise, which is like 20 80-minute movies with no special features. So, what would have taken me the better part of a month to get through under the previous rules, I'll be zooming through like three of those a night. So... Fair enough. In in any case, and, and that also has the double bonus of meaning that we don't have to do three or four shows in a row about the Pokemon franchise. That's true. You will start... But it stretches your section of the podcast longer. Yes, and I will be considering that, and certainly with the Pokemon stuff, I doubt I'll have much to say about them. Like, they all will sort of blend together like the Scooby-Doo ones did after a while. But I will be considering that, yes. You will start to see the impact of this decision next week. But, of course, it will vary week to week, you know? Some weeks I'll be watching long movies, so there might not be more than I would have talked about in the past. Some weeks there will be more. Uh, there's, it's, it's all sort of, we'll see how it goes. But anyways, I just thought I'd, I'd say that just off the top here. Because, yeah, I panicked slightly after doing those mathematical calculations. <laughs> but I can't remove anything from the list, right? Especially now. And I can't change the manner in which I add stuff to the list. I might have been able to do it if we hadn't done a whole podcast surrounding the list. But now I'm sort of committed to this bit, aren't I? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You, you're latched to it, sort of. It, this is your Sisyphean task. You're like, you're like Prometheus getting your, you know, organs pecked out by a bird. Like this is what you're stuck doing for the rest of time. Yeah, that's exactly what it's like. But <laughs> in any case. But sometimes the bird is nice, and it doesn't. You know, it picks out your organs a little bit quicker to get it over with. In any case, the movies I've watched this week. First, I, I've, well, I've, of course, watched The Mummy, but then I have watched The Mummy Returns, which is a fantasy adventure film like the first one. It's directed by Stephen Summers. And in it, would you believe, The Mummy Returns. Everyone returns, in fact. Everyone is back. Uh, Brendan Fraser is back. Rachel Wise is back. John Hannah is Benny's back. Benny's not back. Yeah, but good riddance to him. It, it, it takes place after uh, about ten years after the end of, of the first movie, where, forget, let me just forget their characters' names here. Rick and Evelyn, they're now married, and they have a, an annoying offspring by the name of Alex, played by Freddie Both. He's eight years old. And the mummy 
is resurrected, once again played by Arnold Vosloo, and he's been resurrected by this, this cult to stop the Scorpion King, played by Dwayne Johnson, who is also coming back to life, for some reason I'm not entirely certain of, but they're going to... Anyone who kills the Scorpion King inherits his army of Anubis-headed monster warriors, and... Sort of like the Santa Claus. Yes, and, and they would take over the world if that were to happen. So, Imhotep, the mummy, wants that. And of course, everyone else wants that not to happen. So they all set out to stop him. But Alex is kidnapped by Imhotep, and that complicates matters. This is a big step down from the first one, but it is entertaining enough. There's, there's, I mean, there's no originality here at all. It's just the greatest hits of the first one. I mean, you get the same enemies even, like the soldier mummies pop up at the beginning for a, for a chase through London. You get the scarabs again. I mean, Imhotep is back. Uh, they, they drag in his his dearly departed princess from back when he was human. Uh, the structure is, is different, at least. The first movie was a quest movie, and this movie is more of a chase movie. They are This is a cross-country chase as they are trying to to get to Imhotep's destination before he does, and of course catch up with him to rescue their son. Uh, and, and and that is a nice change of pace, at least. And you get some, some pretty interesting stuff just regarding the different locations and things. It isn't just all sand and gr- brownish, greyish cities like the first movie was. Alex as a general character is a real problem, though. He is incredibly annoying. He's He is of... He should be like in the definition. If you went to the dictionary and for character types and look at the precocious child section, there should be a picture of this kid. He is so deeply annoying. He does not behave like a real person. And Freddie both, again, I don't like criticizing the acting of children, but he's an adult now, so he can take it. He's terrible in this. He, he does himself. Oh, come on. You love criticising the acting of children. Don't be modest. Well, he apparently turned down the opportunity to audition for the Harry Potter series so that he could do this movie because The Mummy's like his favourite movie. And we're like, all right, it's a good call for everyone involved. He got to be in his favourite franchise. The rest of us dodged a bullet. <laughs> and we got Daniel Radcliffe out of it. So, praise be to Freddy, I guess. The movie also goes a little ridiculous with things. It, it isn't sort of grounded in the sort of spooky atmosphere of the first movie. There are a lot of big fantasy concepts here, like past lives. There's some fantasy-style dirigible airships with boost buttons. that it, it loses its grounded feel. That's not necessarily a problem. It's just different. This is a more fantastical movie. The script is incredibly clunky. It's really cheesy, though. And the dialogue is just like, for as, for as much of a problem that both is, I don't see that how he could have salvaged some of that dialogue. I mean, when even the, the adult actors can't. You get good action-adventure sequences, though, but the Scorpion King as a general concept is just not utilised. Uh, Dwayne Johnson is not utilised. He barely has, like, two lines of dialogue and none of them are in English. He's barely in the film, just at the start, basically, before he is replaced by terrible, terrible, horrifying CGI. And the Scorpion King just doesn't really seem to track as as a villain. He just isn't 
present enough in the film for him to really have an impact. This movie in general, because it could have used more consideration, I know it was rushed into production after the first one was such an unexpected hit. It came out two years after the first one. I think it could have used a little more time incubating. But if anyone is in Australia and interested, it is available for streaming on Binge and Foxtel now. And Stan. Is it? Yeah, it is. It's in 4K HDR as well, which that's an interesting thing. There are some films on Stan that just go on in 4K, but some of them do that extra work, and I don't know how they divvy that kind of thing up. Well, I would imagine it goes to uh, which has had a 4K Blu-ray release or not, because all the Mummy movies have. Yeah, but the third one doesn't have HDR. That is interesting. So, yeah, so that's just weird. Maybe with the licensing or something. Yeah, maybe. Speaking of the third one, I next watched that. The Mummy, Tomb of the Dragon Emperor. This one's directed by Rob Cohen. And now Alex is 21, and he is played by Luke Ford. He's also, strangely, stopped having a British accent and started having an American one. A bad American one that frequently slips into Australian because that is where Luke Ford is from. In any case, Alex is now estranged from Rick and Evie, who has been replaced by Maria Bello. Rachel Weisz tapped out after the second one. But they reunite after he discovers the tomb of the Dragon Emperor. The Dragon Emperor Jet Li. He's a mummy in China. He was cursed by a sorceress, played by Michelle Yeoh, to basically be turned to clay and he's been found where all the terracotta army uh relics have been found and and it's this whole secret history of of him and the great wall and how he was a dictator and it's all very complicated but he is resurrected and so the chase is on once again to stop him from fully regenerating and taking over the world Uh, this is repetitive but it's fun the change in the scenery is very welcome I like that we're not going back to the desert. I like that we're getting a little bit more of a new thing. Like we're getting, you know, all Chinese cities circa the 1940s and that sort of Asian architecture. We're getting, you know, the countryside. We're getting a battle in front of the Great Wall of China. We're getting stuff in the snowy mountains. It's just a different vibe, which is appreciated after the, the two movies with the same villain in the same kinds of environments. The structure is pretty much exactly the same, though. <laughs> like, it's pretty much exactly the same as the first two movies. They're just trying to stop this mummy. They go to various secret ancient places to try and stop him, and it all culminates in pretty much exactly the same way. This is sort of a quest-chase combination. It's c- combining the structures of the first two movies. Uh, but unfortunately, it gets bogged down a lot of uninteresting family squabble stuff. All of the stupid interpersonal drama that's going on in the O'Connor family. And a lot of it seems out of character as well. Rick, in particular, is behaving in a fashion that seems out of character compared to how we've seen him in different movies. We don't... I, I never really believe that he is... That he would end up being an emotionally distant father watching him in the first two movies. Especially in the second movie, oh. when he actually does interact with his son on screen. Yeah, because he's a very, like... Out there, exuberant. Yeah, he's too warm for it. He's like, well, yeah. this isn't like, uh, I don't know, Benedict Cumberbatch playing Rick O'Connor. This is Brendan Fraser. What I get from Rick is that he's someone in, in touch with his emotions. So it, he never seemed like he'd be a very distant figure. For the most part, he interacts with people not with hostility, but with 
a lot of compassion, which is surprising considering his background. There's also a bit of a, of a continuity thing here because it's only been nine years since the first movie, but Alex is now 21, so 23 years have passed since the first movie, and that makes the ages of Brendan Fraser and John Hannah and Rachel, and, uh, sorry, what's her name? Maria Bello, because she's replacing uh, Rachel Weiss. Noticeably, they, they're too young for, the, for that amount of time to have passed, Brendan Fraser is barely 40 when he filmed this, mm. when this came out. So for the idea for him to have a 21-year-old son and for it to have been 23 years since his appearance in the first movie, no. But you do get some good action stuff. There's, there's a very Hong Kong martial arts cinema-inspired thing. You get, of course, Jet Li, but Michelle Yeoh of, of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is a very accomplished screen martial artist. You got some really good stuff there. But it's predictable, and it's following a set formula. The The new environments do help a lot, though. I think it's probably my second favourite of the Mummy movies, behind the first. It is also available for streaming on Binge, Foxtel Now, and I'm assuming Stan as well. Of Yeah. yeah. We got it just in... We, we got to the Mummy franchise just in time, because literally just a week before the Mummy movies came to Stan. Huh. Maybe that's why, yeah. maybe that's why I haven't got them recorded here. Maybe I maybe I double checked that before they mm. actually came to stand. Yeah. Well, of course I watched. <laughs> of course Ooh, I, this I, is going to be good. I watched the Mummy franchise, and so my commitment to continuity means I must also watch the Scorpion King movies, of which punished there are, for your hubris, Lawson. Of which there are five. All right, guess for me here. When do you think the last, without looking it up, when do you think the last Scorpion King movie came out? 2018. 2018. Yes. You already knew that, obviously. How? <laughs> no, I had no idea. They're, I just guessed. John guessed I knew. They're still making them. They're still making them. <laughs> of course they are. Of course they, they are. They've outlasted their original series by 12 years and a reboot. In any case, this first movie is directed by Chuck Russell. It's about the young Scorpion King. He gets a name here. Matthias is once again played by Dwayne Johnson. And he is one of the last Akkadians. This is set before the pyramids went up. This is ancient, ancient Egypt. And the free tribes of the area are under attack by a warlord named Memnon. He's played by Stephen Brand. And he is advised by, unwillingly advised, I should add, by a sorceress he has captive named Cassandra. She's played by Kelly Hugh. She can see the future. And... The last free tribes hire Matthias and his buddies to assassinate Cassandra so that they can actually mount a defence without them seeing things in advance. But things get complicated, as they always do in these types of stories. This is, to Conan the Barbarian, what The Mummy is to the Indiana Jones franchise. I liked it more watching it this time than I did the first time that I saw this because I have actually seen the first four Scorpion King movies yeah. before the last few weeks because, of course, my commitment to continuity meant that the last time I watched the Mummy franchise, I also watched the Scorpion King franchise, all of the ones that were released up to that point. This is pretty basic swords and sandals stuff. It's downplaying the fantasy elements that the Mummy movies have and that the Scorpion movies, everyone after this, is going to have as well. The only real fantastical element is the premonition stuff with Kelly Who. 
but it's it's just predictable and cliched. It is a sword and sandal movie of the of the of the cheapo kind that were being made in the seventies and eighties. The Scorpion King as a character is a little bit complicated. It complicates things because he is not remotely anything like the character that is being played in uh, The Mummy Returns by Dwayne Johnson. He is a Dwayne Johnson character here. He's got the charisma. Yeah. He's got the the swagger. He is kind of funny in, in that charming way that, that Dwayne Johnson is. And he's a good guy. So it seems unusual. And none of the movies in the Scorpion King franchise ever ever take us to a point where the Scorpion King could ever be considered the bad guy. That is still left unresolved at, at this point in the Scorpion Maybe they'll make another one where he finally falls to the dark side and sets up The Mummy Returns, but they haven't done it yet. Apparently, I read something where they said that the Scorpion King in The Mummy Returns is a descendant of his. Uh... I, I, I find there's a lot compelling about a hero turning to darkness as a as an it's a very interesting character arc and it's part of why i'm so excited for black adam well black adam is going to be this but better yeah it's it's going to be how a sort of swords and sandals hero turns into a villain well this was i mean the first mummy movie was dwayne johnson's film debut that the, the mummy returns sorry so this was yeah. sort of his first headline role. He had done acting before. He was in an episode of Star Trek Voyager as an alien gladiator. But <laughs> this was the first time he was really... Anch- and he was in WWE. Well, obviously, yes. But this is the first time he was really anchoring a movie. And this came out, like, the year after The Mummy Returns did. Like, they had already green-lighted it before The Mummy Returns came out because everyone was like, everyone's going to love the Scorpion King. You know, that's going to be the big breakout character. Everyone's going to want to know where he came from. Everyone's going to look at that CGI and yeah. be like, yes, this. The The quest stuff is uncomplicated, but it's also short. This is a short movie. It is under 90 minutes. And it is the shortest of the franchise, even though all of the other ones are direct-to-video. So it, it moves quickly. And, you know, the quest doesn't need to be complicated. And the action is strong. Dwayne Johnson obviously is good at fighting, choreographed fights, and of course you've got all the stuntmen there with him. Vince McMahon from WWE is a producer on the movie. Oh, Vinny. But this is clearly done on a budget. This is clearly low budget. You you can see it on the screen. This didn't get anywhere near what The Mummy got in terms of, of capital. But Dwayne Johnson is, is good. You can see right from the start that, okay, this guy can be a movie star. And there are a few character actors in there, like Kelly Hu, like Michael, like Michael Clark Duncan and Bernard Hill. The latter two of whom are, are wasted, but they are, you know, there's there's some some good names and faces to pop up here. Everyone else is pretty bargain bin though, and there's too much electric guitar score for a Swords and Sandals right. movie. And the end credit song is Godsmack which immediately makes me want to take, like, five points off of my end score here. But, I mean, it, it, it's really goofy. It's really cheesy. I mean, you know, the opening scene is him jumping in to rescue his his brother from being captured by some warish tribe in the middle of nowhere, and he jumps in and the electric guitar starts up, and he finishes everyone off, and then he turns around to his brother and says, you luck, you're lucky we have the same mother. 
and then the brother sort of gives him this look like oh scorpion king and then it cuts to like <laughs> oh the overbearing electric guitar music again as the logo comes up like this i thought it was gonna cut in with like a sitcom theme this is just a weird spin-off i don't understand First off, how this was greenlit in the first place, and then how it went on for five movies. But it is charming in its own way. It is available for streaming on Binge and Foxtel now. I don't know if it's since come to stand, but... I've got no idea. I, of course, next watched The Scorpion King 2, Rise of a Warrior. This is a direct-to-video prequel, actually. All of them, the following are direct-to-video, but this is the only prequel. This one is directed by Russell Mulcahy. We have a young Matthias, played by Michael Copon, who is replacing Dwayne Johnson. Dwayne Johnson did not return for any of the direct-to-video sequels. And in fact, only one Matthias actor is in more than one of these. They keep replacing them. They keep changing, his, changing the actor and the ethnicity of the character. Scorpion King will get progressively whiter as the series continues. But... Young Matthias, his father is killed by a supernatural baddie, King Sargon, played by Randy Couture. And... (laughs) And he sets out to find the Sword of Damocles, because Randy Couture is a supernatural king, and so only the Sword of Damocles can stop him. This is a step down, but it's it's not without low-budget charm. This is like full Conan knockoff now, with all of the, the mythic quest stuff and the fantasy element that all of that implies. It ropes classic myth in. I mean, all of this all this stuff from Greek myth, from Egyptian myth. I mean, you thought Theseus killed the Minotaur? No, it was your old pal, the Scorpion King. He, he journeys to the underworld in that way that a lot of Greek heroes do. That, that very sort of like... You know, you go into the underworld and there are all of these tempting things, but if you indulge or go off the path, you'll you'll get lost there. And that's... So slowly but surely, it's just becoming Jason and the Argos. Yes, pretty much. Uh, and, and that underworld stuff is probably the most effective. There's a, there's, a, there's a nice weirdness to how they present the underworld, but there's a total absence of any interesting characters here. Like, these are all stock characters. A lot of the, the charm is gone from how the characters were presented in The Mummy and even in the, the first Scorpion King. And the actors are all not good. They're all pretty bargain bin. None of them are recognisable, really, other than Randy Couture, who is very unfortunate. He is not a Dwayne Johnson. There are very... Like, people keep trying to make wrestlers actors. And all right, you, you get your Dwayne Johnsons and your Dave Batistas and your... Uh, what? John Cena. Yeah, that's who I was looking for, John Cena. But the it's, those are the exceptions to the rule. Most wrestlers are not good at screen acting for, for a film or a television yeah. show. They're being asked to do something very specific in WWE that doesn't necessarily translate to an actual dramatic role. Yeah, absolutely. They're very talented physical performers. Yeah. And getting them to play, like, physical bad guys and stuff is really successful. I can point to some of the action set pieces out of the Expendables franchise and how they get wrestlers in to play the villains in those, and that's really successful. But when when you're getting them to act in a way they haven't been taught to or coached to, it falls tends to fall apart. Because wrestling is very campy, and it's very over-exaggerated, and that doesn't necessarily turn into deep, complex backstories and 
all of those more subtle things that screen actors do. So Randy Couture is obviously the most recognisable name here. I mean, the next is probably Copon as Matthias. Looking him up, he apparently played the Blue Power Ranger for a season. So that's, that's nice. the next most famous guy in here. He does sort of... Ca- He's not as good as Dwayne Johnson, but he does a decent enough job of snapping into the general rhythm that has been established for the character, which is good. The finale is overlong. Randy Couture turns into a giant invisible scorpion that must be fought, and... Wait, why isn't he the Scorpion King? He's invisible. How convenient. They, like, they like give an origin for why he is the Scorpion King, like, three times over in these movies. Like, he's just got this weird connection with scorpions over and over and over again. In this one, he fights Scorpion Randy Couture, who is invisible, which helpfully means that they don't actually have to spend any money to render a giant CGI scorpion. It's just this poor bastard Copon running around an, an empty set, ducking as squibs go off over his head and, and bits of wall pop out, and we're supposed to believe that it was just the scorpion like smacking its claws into the wall and things. <laughs> it's real goofy. But this creates further continuity problems. In the first Scorpion King movie, he is the last Acadian. Now there's a whole city full of them. Maybe you just happen to, you know, survive a giant genocide? Yeah. In any case, this is a bit aimless, but it could have been worse. I mean, I'll give it a pat on the head for that. Next, I watched Scorpion King 3, Battle for Redemption. This is directed by Rob Rene. Redemption? Who's trying to redeem themselves? Him. Scorpion King. This is not a prequel, it is a sequel. And everyone at the end of the Scorpion King, the Scorp- well, spoilers for the end of the first Scorpion King. Scorpion King becomes a Scorpion King at the end of the first one, and he assumes the, the role as, as king of this little little kingdom, and he marries the, the love interest from that movie, and all of his friends are like, yeah, Scorpion King. We pick up in this movie, they've all died. Every single one of them, dead. Plague. Plague got them. And now he's not the Yikes. Scorpion King anymore. Now he's just sort of wandering because his whole kingdom has died. And so that's why he is battling for redemption. He is working as a mercenary and he is now played by Victor Webster. He is hired by King Horus, played by Ron Perlman. And he needs to stop King Horus's brother Talus, played by Billy Zane, from attacking King Ramusin, played by Tamura Morrison... Uh, one of King Horus's allies, and stealing the Book of the Dead, which, of course, ends up in The Mummy Returns as, as a thing that's linked with the Scorpion King. Uh, because if Talus gets hold of the Book of the Dead, then he'll be able to depose King Horus. And King and, and Talus is this, this awful sort of despot kind of guy. And Matthias, along with a helpful idiot named Olaf, played by Boston Christopher, set out to go off to King Ramesson's kingdom and, and help him withstand the attack this is another step down uh there's a less interesting war plot here there's a, there's a lot of the back and forth between the the parries between talus and ramasan's armies but this is a budget direct-to-video film so they don't really have the capabilities of doing that in a really interesting way there's a requisite romance that's shoehorned in with a character named silda played by crystal v that uh, Matthias starts flirting with. And there's a lot of shoehorned-in comedy, too. This is kind of a, a, a more goofy movie. They're, they're playing into the, the buddy shtick with Matthias and Olaf, but 
Billy Zane is also just tearing the scenery up like he's so campy in what he's doing here that it's it really is kind of extraordinary. It's very entertaining to watch. I'm not going to say that he's better than the movie that he's in because he he's probably around the same level of quality, but he's more entertaining than the movie is he's in. Let's put it that way. Matthias is supposed to be haunted and brooding here. I mean, everyone's died that he knows and loves, but the script and Webster can't sell it. So it sort of just goes nowhere, and that's disappointing. But there is a supernatural element here. Once Billy Zane gets a hold of the Book of the Dead, he summons three supernatural warriors, one of whom is played by Dave Bautista. This is... Who should have played the Scorpion King. Well, this is before everyone realised that Dave Bautista was actually a good actor. This is two years before the first Guardians of the Galaxy. So... And, I mean, he really is a good actor. There's a reason why Denis Villeneuve keeps casting him in stuff. Like, he's not the best wrestler-turned-actor. I think he is. But he's definitely part of that successful trinity. I think he's a better actor than The Rock. I do, too. Like, I've, like his stuff in, like, Blade Runner, I mean... His stuff in Blade Runner he was tries, he, astonishing. He tries different things more than The Rock as well. Like, The Rock has ended up playing The Rock. Uh, but Dave Bautista yeah. has, he tries dramatic stuff, he tries comedy stuff, he tries, you know, science fiction action stuff. He's yeah. he's branched out in a way that has proved that he has, I think, more range than The Rock. He was in that Brunswick movie, mm. where it's all filmed like it's in one shot, and it's about, like, you know, the Brunswick borough in New York turning into a war zone, and that is very, like, hardcore, real... You're just stuck with this person as he's going through some shit. Wasn't he also in that Hotel Artemis? Yes, he was, and that was great too. Uh, The IMDb for Scorpion King 3 says, This film is a sequel to a prequel to a prequel of a sequel of a remake. Yeah, well, that, that same person who did that has done that for all of the Scorpion King movies. So, if I go to the last one on the list here, I'm pretty sure it's there as well. Oh, no, it isn't. It isn't. I might not have got around to seeing that one yet, whoever did that, but, yeah. Um, but, yes, this is early Dave Bautista. This is Dave Bautista before he became famous in the mainstream. And so he doesn't get his own billing, even. He has to share billing with a gentleman named Kevin Kimbo Slice Ferguson. Uh, the actors are all surprisingly high caliber, though, especially given the level that has been set in the previous director video Scorpion King movies. I mean, Perlman, Zane... Um, Morrison, Batista. I mean, you've got people who... They're recognisable. They're recognisable. And Crystal V is actually quite good as Silda. But it seems cheaper than the previous movie. It it, is, it has got some good a good change in environments. Like, he, he journeys to this other kingdom to help out. And this other kingdom is a jungle kingdom. Like, it's not the sand... And deserty stuff. It's it's very lush jungle. It was filmed in Thailand, and they make good use of a lot of really old Thai structures that they were able to find and shoot in. But there was one moment where I was watching like an establishing shot of this old ruin in the middle of the jungle, and then I stopped and I said, "Is that a security camera?" And I rewound the film, and yes, it was. If you look in the background of the scene, you can see that on the wall of this old ruin is a security camera that is clearly there to stop tourists from vandalising the place. And it just so happens to turn up in this movie that is set thousands of years BCE. That person was just on it. 
That person's well, just trying to keep his stuff safe. Think of all of the of the eyes that have to see a movie before it actually gets released to the public, right? Mm. Yeah. And I'm watching and I'm like, the, the first time that shot pops up on screen, I'm like, security camera. <laughs> like, I, and that sort of stuff can be easily scrubbed out. In any case... Just use a different shot. In any case, this is meandering, but overqualified actors, save it. That's it for me this week. I will check back in next week, and you will hear my opinions on the final two Scorpion King movies. Nothing but praise, I assume. You may be surprised yeah. about the fourth one, at least. Alright, so, John and I have watched, you know, quite a bit this week. First, we're going to talk about a TV show we started the second season of. We started watching the second season of The Boys. The Boys is a superhero parody satire show. Satire more than parody. Satire more than parody. In the first season, we're introduced to the world of The Boys, of an organization called Vought, and their premier superhero team, The Seven. The Boys is about how superheroes are assholes, essentially. That's the general conceit of the show. We start, we follow Huey, Hugh Campbell, who gets his girlfriend ran through by a speedster. Uh, and then he gets drawn into this whole conflict between Billy Butcher, played by Cole Urban, has a vendetta against the Seven, who are led by Homelander, played by Anthony Starr. Homelander is, has all the powers of Superman, but is this, like, uber-American nationalist and a legitimate psychopath. The rest of the Seven consist of Black Noir, who is their Batman, who is the silent ninja, Queen Maeve, who is their Wonder Woman, who used to be idealistic but has had that idealism punished pretty much, Uh, The Deep, who is their version of Aquaman, who is a sex pest, and a really pathetic character. The Deep gets progressively shit on throughout the entire show, and it's so funny, uh, because Trance Crawford, the actor, plays it so well. Then we also have Translucent, who is invisible, and then A-Train, who is their speedster. At the start of season two, Translucent is dead, spoiler alert, uh, and they need a new member. Uh, also on the seven is Starlight, uh, Annie January played by Erin Moriarty. At the start of season two, they have to introduce a new member to the seven because Translucent is dead, and they introduce Stormfront, uh, played by Aya Cash. I'm not going to spoil much because a lot of stuff at the start of season two is spoilers for the first season, but Storm- Stormfront's bad news. As I'm sure you can tell because of the name. I really like this show. Yeah. I've read a bit of the comics, and we've talked about this before off mic, when the first season came out. The comic is mean-spirited. And just vulgar. Vulgar, really, really crass. And it claims to be clever, but it really isn't. It just becomes hateful, really. The Amazon series is much, much smarter in terms of how they adapt moments from the comic. And how they adapt characters. This is... This show, specifically season two, really picks on the studio superhero films. Yes. A major plot point in the second season is that a film is being made called Dawn of the Seven. And when you see the big posters of it, 
It's like the same font as Batman vs Superman Dawn of Justice. They even like mention at one point a, a Joss rewrite. It, it's full of that sort of thing. There's a moment that harkens to the she's got help moment in Avengers Endgame, but they change it into this very obtuse girls get it done moment. Yeah, this very obvious and done thing. Yeah, it, it has a lot to say about how companies use their product to really be disingenuous a lot of the time or seem disingenuous a lot of the time it has a lot to say about hollywood itself because the seven are famous they're they're famous people they act in their own movies yeah and that goes exactly as well as you think it would terribly but the show is fantastic the costumes are incredible particularly the one for homelander oh yeah it just looks stunning the special effects have gotten a step up in season two. They're already very good, but they've just yeah. gotten better. Yeah. And well, this is like Amazon's huge breakout show. Like it's done oh, yeah. so yes. incredibly well for them. Like they're already fast tracking development of a spinoff. I don't know if you've heard that. I've heard of it. Yeah. They're doing like a like kind of a parody of the Xavier Institute, <laughs> where it's like you know. Oh, G-Men. oh they're doing. G-Men. Oh, they're doing a whole thing on its own about that. They're them. doing a whole, like, college students with superpowers spin-off. Okay, cool. That'll I like be funny. that. They're introducing a new character next season called Soldier Boy, played by Jensen Ackles, who is their version of Captain America, and are likely introducing their version of the Avengers called Payback. So that's going to be very entertaining. Uh, well, in the second yes. last episode of season two, and stuff has popped off. <laughs> Literally as well as metaphorically. It's it's very good. It's so much better than the comic. So much better. It gives a lot more characters depth. And you s- there are a lot more nice people. And that helps the really awful people be really awful. Whereas in the comic, it's just everyone is shit. Yeah, uh, Huey, and- Huey has a line at the end of the second season where he says... I've had enough of this blood and awfulness. Uh, yeah. And blood and awfulness is the comic, while this is much cl- much smarter and just overall better. So if you're going to interact with any media from the boys, the Amazon series is the one to pay attention to. We also watched another Amazon original, uh, something that was kind of a surprise coming out when it was announced. We watched Borat's subsequent movie film. Come on, what's the full name? Come on. Hold on, I just need to get to it. Because they have like a couple of different headings in the movie. Go for All it. Right, so the working title was Borat Gift of Pornographic Monkey to Vice Premier Mikhail Pence to make benefit recently diminished nation of Kazakhstan. There's another one they have though, but it's not on the IMDb. Well, the one I'm looking at says that the original title is Borat Subsequent Movie Film Delivery of Prodigious Bribe to American Regime for Make Benefit Once Glorious Nation of Kazakhstan. Yep, that's another yeah. one of the titles that they have in the movie. So what are we what are we putting in the also discussed? Are we putting Borat Subsequent Movie Film or are we putting one of the long ones? One of the long ones. It doesn't really matter which. I'm a big fan of the original Borat. I think it's very funny. It has heartfelt moments, but it... But the most significant part is that it reveals the nature of certain parts of America. 
and reveals the widespread racism, sexism, anti-Semitism, pretty much the widespread hate that was running at an undercurrent during the Bush administration. This, if anyone hasn't noticed, that sort of stuff's not... That sort of stuff isn't a little bit of an undercurrent now. It's more like a overcurrent in current American politics. So the general conceit of this movie is that Borat has been sent to America to offer a monkey to Mike Pence, Johnny the Monkey. Uh, it's, he's more than just a monkey, though. He's like this. Uh, he's the minister for propaganda for Kazakhstan. Yeah, yeah, he's like... He also he also f- directs and stars in <laughs> pornography. The sort of preamble for that is that after the first Borat film came out, because of all of the bad... All of the press that Kazakhstan got, Borat was sent to a gulag and punished. <laughs> so before they send him back, they, they inject him full of gypsy tears, they send him off... And they... When he gets to America and opens the crate to, you know, get Johnny out of the box... See the monkey. His daughter pops out, his 15-year-old daughter, Tuta, played by 24-year-old Bulgarian newcomer Mira Baklova, I believe it is. And She's been in stuff before this, like, but only in Bulgaria. Yeah. This is her first international film. And from here, Borat gets instructed... Oh, she ate Johnny the monkey, apparently. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or Johnny ate himself. It's one of the two. Uh, that never gets decisively answered, though. He then gets told to offer his daughter to Michael Pence instead. And then chaos ensues from there. There is surprising moments of heart to this. Yeah. There's a development of a relationship between Borat and his daughter Tutar that both Sasha Baron Cohen and Maria play very, very well. But the other general conceit of the film is people recognize who Borat is. They they yeah. see him and they go, oh, that's Borat. Very nice. So he has to dress up in costumes, similar to what Sasha Baron Cohen did in... What is America? Yeah, that. And... That's really successful at times. But the real star of this is Maria Baklova. She hits the same energy as Sasha does, and sometimes bursts past his energy. Yeah, at points she puts him on the back foot, and it's so entertaining to watch. She doesn't break character for a single second. Like, it is honestly incredible what she had been able to accomplish. Because the transformation is so complete, Obviously, undercurrents of racism, anti-Semitism are not exactly exposed, but interrogated throughout the film. Uh, they also address the QAnon stuff. They, I'm sure in the news you've seen this thing about Rudy Giuliani. I have, yeah. From what I could see of it, it doesn't take that long to tuck in your shirt. <laughs> and you don't need to tuck your shirt in that much over your groin. See, he untucked his shirt first. Oh, it's to get the mic out. No matter what, it's still not good because he was still being incredibly lecherous before Oh, that. yeah. It, he was still creepy beforehand. But obviously, watch it for yourself and, you know, make up your mind after that. But it, this was hilarious. 
Especially when Borat gets his second wind after talking to two Jewish ladies in a synagogue. <laughs> We're not going to talk about the like the plot point that gets him to talk to them because it is so brilliant. But this lady is so nice. She's an absolute angel. And these two Jewish ladies were told beforehand what sexual... No, they weren't told beforehand. They were told, like, right after. Right. Yeah, they were told right after the th- whole thing was done. They were they were told, oh yeah, well, Sasha Baron Cohen... This, this is Sasha Baron Cohen. This is for the new Borat film. He's a Jewish man, so don't take the things he said as, you know, his opinions about stuff. But yeah, this is incredibly funny. It's a laugh, it's right? It's a lot of heart. I don't do this a lot, but I actually slapped my knee. This was a <laughs> yeah. knee slapper. Which is it weird, because I don't usually have that physical reaction. At moments it's uncomfortable, but not more so than the first. It was less uncomfortable than the first. Yeah. It, th- this film was far more narrative-driven okay. than the first one was. But it's still fantastic. It's a fantastic piece of satire, fantastic piece of commentary, and alongside this, I I read an article that talked about how Sasha Baron Cohen avoided cancel culture, and I'm just sitting there reading it going, what are you even talking about? One, there's no such thing as cancel culture, really. There are consequences, but even then, those consequences don't tend to last very long. And Sasha isn't punching down at anybody either. He is going after people in power and going after ideologies in power as well. I also watched something on Quibi this week, my first Quibi show. Of course you did. John did not. Where were you when it mattered, Harley? Look, I found out the news about Quibi's end and I had to mourn, man, don't judge me. I watched The Stranger, which is a story about a young woman has moved to LA to get away from a lot of trouble happening in her hometown. She's an aspiring screenwriter, but as many aspiring screenwriters do, she has to get a job as a as the film's version of a Uber driver. She goes to this rich person's home to pick up a her new passenger, and her new, new passenger played by Dane DeHaan claims he murdered the people inside the house. This eventually leads to this Really intense chase through L.A. of Dane DeHaan's character tormenting her. I have no issue with the content of the series. Content of the series is perfectly fine. It's a it's a thriller with a lot of really interesting elements, but ultimately fails at giving the villain an interesting, you know, motive for what he's doing. Where it falls apart is format. If this was just a two and a bit hour movie. It'd be perfectly fine. But what I don't need to happen is for a segment to end, then have to wait for the next segment to start. I'm not a goldfish. My attention span lasts longer than that. <laughs> so you can see, I mean, we were talking about earlier that there's that discussion that might, they might be sold to Netflix. You can see how you would stitch it all together to to create a, a oh, absolutely. film. More than anything, it doesn't feel like they were... That this movie in particular, I don't know about other Quibi originals, that this in particular wasn't shot to be episodic. This was shot to be one continuous story. And 
the decision to cut them into segments of about nine minutes seemed ridiculous Well, and arbitrary. I think that a lot of them were shot like that. Like, Katzenberg, in the interviews I've seen with him, actually refers to them as movies. So yeah. I think a lot of them were actually shot like that and then cut in pieces. Yeah, I know that some. I know that some of them um, were 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 film scripts that could be picked up and then split apart. Yeah, the movie, The Stranger, is all about that tension of when she, when Dane Hahn's going to find her, but that tension gets released whenever an episode ends, and it just it doesn't serve what the story is trying to get at. The rest of it's really successful. I really have nothing else to comment about the story. The acting is great, but it it really is let down by format. I'm a big fan of Micah Monroe ever since It Follows. She's so good in that. Yes, she is very good. I in don't this. understand how she hasn't like it's been six years since It Follows. I don't understand how she hasn't really like popped and become like a big star in that time. It's it seems like something that should have happened by now. Like, I like seeing Dane DeHaan and stuff as well. I think he's a really intense actor. I've enjoyed seeing him ever since Amazing Spider-Man 2, where he played Harry Osborn. But yeah, this is directed by the one of the showrunners for The Killing. The Killing is, I think, on Netflix. At least, I think that's yep. where it ended up. It started out on, I want to say, A&E. They cancelled it after two seasons. Then, like, six months later, decided that they actually didn't want to cancel it. Made a third season. Then they cancelled it after the third season. And then Netflix picked it up for a fourth season. So, mm. it has the unusual distinction of being cancelled and resurrected twice. The Strange was very good. I'd recommend just waiting till it's edited into one thing. Yeah, I, I just... Uh, did, when, what did you watch this on? Like a TV, a phone? Cause it... What else can I watch it on, right, Lawson? You, you I can't... have to watch it on my yeah. phone. I have no interest in There's that. There's nothing else to watch it on. I have no interest in that whatsoever. I will explore Quibi content when any of it is available for streaming on a television. I have no interest in watching anything on a five-inch screen. My, my love for stories and the art of filmmaking is too great to allow that. Yeah, the movie shows off LA very, very well. It's shot gorgeously, mind you. It's, and it's fantastic. It's set, if I look at these episode titles, they're all like 24 episode titles, like they give a time. So it seems like it's set over the course of one night, is that correct? Yes. From the hours of seven till seven. Yep. I really like it. It's just let down by, you know, the sinking ship it's attached to. <laughs> we also watched Hubie Halloween. The Adam Sandler Netflix I know original. you've been trying to cajole Jean into submitting to that for a few weeks now, yes. I really liked it. Really, the only big issue I can take with the movie is the stupid voice Adam Sandler's putting on. Well, that's if you remove that, a problem with every Adam Sandler movie, but continue. Like, if you remove that, you've got a pretty decent Adam Sandler movie. Like, a, it's not a Happy Gilmore good. It's not... No. It's not Mr. D's good, but it's... A lot better than insulting stuff like Jack and Jill yeah. or Grown Ups. This is... The, the most interesting part of the movie is how it explores Halloween in the town of Salem, Massachusetts. It looks gorgeous, right? The color scheme, the use of shadow, the all the different people in costumes, it looks great. Just quickly, what was your overall opinion of it, Jean? Because I, I know that you were not interested whatsoever, from what I could tell. From the moment I heard the voice in the trailer, 
I said to Harley, I am not sitting down and watching this film with you. You can watch it if you want, but I will not be partaking. I ended up partaking. I got slightly inebriated <laughs> in the process of partaking. I concur with Harley on most points. This film would have been so much better if he had cut out the stupid voice. What voice is he doing? Is it, is it his have... normal baby voice or is it a different one? It's like a... Imagine Bobby Boucher from The Waterboy, but so much more annoying. Because for Bobby Boucher, it works. It works because that's the character. That that works with his backstory. For this, it doesn't need to. If, if he had just spoken normally, every joke would have landed five times better. Because it is clever. Because there are some clever moments. There are. There are some clever wordplays. Everyone in the, this town hates Hubie. <laughs> with like, a passion. With a passion. Everyone but his mother oh, hates That should him. just be a common denominator in all Adam Sandler movies, that everyone hates the Adam Sandler character. That would be more believable. No, but like... Th- but this is to a very comedic like, point. Whenever like, he's riding past on his bike, people are chucking shit at him. Like, at one point, someone throws a hatchet, someone no, throws it's a, a pipe cinder block. Wrench. Oh, yeah, someone throws a pipe wrench, someone throws a cinder block. People throw bags of burning dog shit. But like, he's gotten very good at avoiding them. Yeah. So that off. And this is a running joke throughout the film, even when he's riding through a forest in the middle of the night. Shit still flies out at him. Like there's out a harpoon? For, yeah, there's like a harpoon flies out past him for seemingly no good reason. See, that's funny. That is taking the joke to its extreme. There are very funny, clever bits of dialogue. But the voice that he puts on, just... It, it's like he doesn't have the confidence that these jokes are going to land otherwise. And they would have. But he just won't let it. And we know that Sandler can do a movie without just resorting to a stupid voice. We know that, yes. Absolutely. Happy Gilmore, Mr. Deeds, we, uh, Click. Well, he does those um, those more serious movies too, like, uh, what is it, Uncut Gems? And Uncut Gems. What was the other one? Punch that Drunk he did Love. with Dustin Hoffman? No. That's not Hoffman. No, but he, he can do it. I just wish he had a little more confidence in it. It's the Noel Bombach movie. Yeah. I love seeing Steve Buscemi. The Meyerowitz stories. In things. Yeah. Uh, Steve Buscemi plays his new, na- Hubie's new neighbor. Yeah. Who is, has very hairy arms and goes mad at a full moon. Yeah. It's just good, clean fun, really. I guess. Noah Schnapp is in there. And he's I guess. fine. He's fine in it. A lot of the best gags come from him and... The girl he likes. Like, a lot of the funniest bits are in that. It's just... Have you ever seen a movie, Lawson, where you're sitting down, you're watching it, and you just think to yourself, one change. Yeah. If they changed just one single thing, it would make the entire movie better mm. for it. What is that movie for you? Oh, there are more than one movies of that there. There are just choices... Every, every now and again, there's just slight choices that I don't understand. There's, there's always there's always multiple movies of that per year for me that I just don't know why they went in the direction that they did. I mean, I have trouble thinking of one off the top of my head, but yeah, I know that what you mean. 
the really fun thing about the movie is also the references they pull. Yes. There's a reference to Halloween. A very good reference to the most recent Halloween. Mm. Where you see someone like walking down the street. It's shot exactly like that bit in the new one. Just picks up a mask off the ground, puts it on, and keeps walking. Shot exactly the same yeah. way. There's a reference to Jaws that's really successful. Yes. Even if they do make it very obvious through dialogue later. They play the hand pretty obviously, but I still appreciate that for the people who wouldn't, who maybe aren't so familiar with Jaws. But no, I had a lot of fun with it. It's a nice Halloween movie with a nice Halloween feel to it. Kevin James wasn't the worst thing in the movie. <laughs> I have to give it credit for that, at least. His character was actually quite interesting. Yeah. So, that's on Netflix. It's a Netflix original. It's one of the deal that Sandler made with Netflix. Uh, we didn't watch any Smallville uh, this past week, but John does have a small segment for your listening enjoyment. This is Jean Lewis here with my Bloodshot Book Report, as so beautifully introduced to you by my co-hosts. So, you would remember that months ago, I talked about the film Bloodshot, starring Vin Diesel. Now, I didn't quite like it. I had issues with the storytelling, the pace, the narrative, some of the acting, the writing, and the comedic relief characters. The topic of the novelization of the film came up while recording, and against my better judgment, I told Lawson that I would read the novelization cover to cover and discuss it on the podcast. Now, I don't regret doing this, because this has allowed me to get more context on the characters of the film Bloodshot. Plus, I didn't spend my own money on it, so all I wasted was my time. The narrative of the novel is overall better than the film. It gives Bloodshot slash Ray Garrison a good amount of pathos. You understand him more as a person. You get little snippets of his backstory or what we can assume is his backstory. Not necessarily knowing what is true and what is just Harting's bullshit narrative. So we get told that he joined up to the army after 9-11 and that revenge has always been a part of his personality, which is why it was such an easy trigger to use to get him to kill. We also find out backstory for other characters as well. We get more character for the character of Dalton, who is one of the worst parts of the film, while being performed by a fantastic actor. The novel features the backstory of him. He left his comrades to die, in an ac- in not an accident, in an attack. He knew he couldn't save them lest he be killed himself, but he was blamed for their deaths anyway. He also lost his legs in the accident to add insult to injury. This is why he wants to have the bloodshot technology put into him, which isn't a motivation discussed in the film. Only in the novel do we get that little piece of interesting characterization for Dalton. It would have been fantastic if they had used that narrative as well, that he was jealous of Ray Garrison, and that he felt like he needed this technology 
so that he couldn't be blamed for this kind of thing anymore, that he would never be put in the, that position. Not necessarily so that he can go save people, more that he doesn't want to feel weak like that again. The structure of the novel also allows us to breathe as a reader, where after the Barris sequence, where there is the attack on another one of Harting's victims, in the film, after that sequence, Wiggins wakes Garrison up, and Garrison goes to visit who he thinks is his wife, Gina. This scene works a lot better in the novel, with the section after it describing the mental anguish going on inside Garrison's head. I will read to you a snippet of that. Gina tied to the wheelchair in the slaughterhouse, terrified, but still telling Garrison with her eyes that she loved him, even as Barris put the bolt pistol to her head. He wasn't a real person. He was a simulation invented by Harting constructed from the fragments of Ray Garrison. The stainless steel of the bolt gun against Gina's soft skin, Martin Axe leering at him, the pleasure on his face. He was just an experimental weapon platform, a gun with the implanted memory of a dead wife as the trigger. Now a nameless, older Chinese man held the bolt gun to his wife's head. His ex-wife. Gina didn't love him anymore. He had kept her waiting too long for too little. Who even was Ray Garrison? The hydraulic snap of the bolt gun. The crunch of steel meeting skull. The spray of blood. There was no Ray Garrison. There was only bloodshot. This allows us to get further into Garrison's personality and gives more pathos to the character. You find out more about Harting's company in that... The American government is sort of bankrolling everything, but has noticed that people who were involved in the project tend to be dropping off with what is described as a ghost killing them. This ghost being bloodshot in his previous incarnations, or previous memories, or previous run-throughs. It is in some of these scenes where we get A lot of the same issues that the film does, the use of cliches when it thinks it's being clever and not using these cliches. As I described in the episode in which I reviewed the film, the novel still walks through that same minefield. Instead, it's got a metal detector, but it only picks up half of the cliches, with the dialogue being better allowing for funnier jokes and more clever turns of phrase. The dialogue also allows for the thematic aspects of the story to be available. After the point in the novel that I read to you, it, it stops calling him Garrison. He is just bloodshot at this point, barring a the use of his name later in the novel, which I think was a mistake because they just go back to calling him Bloodshot anyway. The structure of the novel works better with the chase scene between Tibbs, Dalton, and Garrison being swapped in its place with the scene with Gina. So we instead go from Barris to chase scene to Gina, and then he gets recapped. 
captured, which works a lot better because you get Bloodshot seeing Gina, steps out, sort of stumbles down the street, gets pulled into an alleyway and then gets drugged, which is less high octane, but is more interesting and shows the skill level of Tibbs and Dalton. Tibbs being the one who actually tags him. The novel also utilizes a deleted scene from the film that was filmed but never finished, where instead of ripping the arms away from Dalton and letting him fall to his fiery Disney villain death, the ending of Dalton's character is far more subtle. Garrison gets dragged into the pool of the training room by Dalton and is just wailed on by Dalton while Dalton is screaming waste of time, waste of space, ghost story, garbage man, just juvenile mean things. And as Bloodshot is getting the hell kicked from him, the blood ends up in the water, the blood being filled with the nanites. The blood goes up Dalton's legs, goes up his back, hits the chip, which is allowing Dalton to control the exoskeleton he's using, and also rips up Dalton's legs, so he's just stuck in this heavy piece of machinery, this metal, and Bloodshot just pushes him into the deep end of the pool, watches him drown, which is a far better death for Dalton, where he doesn't get to die epic or historic, it's just a murder, plain and simple, which also allows us to get into more of the grimmer, darker aspects of Bloodshot as a character, because he stops talking about things as if they're revenge, and more just the practicalities of just putting down these people who did this to him, which also allows for the character of Bloodshot to be far more compelling than he was on screen. We also get, obviously because it's a novel, more looks into the minds of the characters, get to see their thoughts. You get more pop culture references, like the use of uh, Psycho Killer by the Talking Heads. The song, you know, growing on Harting every time they use it to give Garrison his, you know, PTSD-induced flashback. The film sort of had issues from the get-go with its choice of the structure by having us, sort of, by giving us the spiel about who Garrison was. The novel does this as well, but it is to the novel's benefit because it is less obvious that Harting and everyone at RST are evil. The character of Eric, the IT guy, is still there. The character of Wiggins is still there. They could have not been in the narrative, and it would have been the better for it. And the character of Katie is there as well. The novelization features a side story, or short story prologue, to her character called Into the Fire, which explains how she fell in with RST to begin with. I haven't finished reading this because it's not relevant to the overall plot of the film. It's just a little bit of window dressing for the character of KT, who does end up being a little bit more complex within the narrative of the novel. 
I tried to separate Vin Diesel from the character. I love Vin Diesel, but I wanted to see if I could put other actors into the role of Ray Garrison in the movie cinema of my mind. I didn't end up being able to. I tried to imagine him as Thomas Jane. That didn't quite work out. It just kept throwing me back into Vin Diesel. But I feel like that's just because I've been thinking about this film and this novel. And this character more in the span of four months than I have ever in my life. The Valiant Comics side of things has never been interesting to me. And I don't think I need to go into any more detail about the character of Bloodshot. I don't really... I'm not really interested in seeing different versions of him. Uh, This movie's not going to get a sequel. You can tell this cinematic universe that Valiant really want to make, I don't believe is going to get off the ground. Mostly due to some of the failures of cinematic universes that have happened recently. Universal Monsters comes to mind. Uh, That's it for my Bloodshot book report. I'm sure if you met me on the street, I would have a little bit more to say. I could have read you a few more snippets of the book. If people want that, I will. And that's really all I've got to say about that. Moving on. So, now we're going to play for you the trailer for The Mummy. Where did you get this? On a dig down in Thebes. (gasps) Jonathan, I think you found something. There is an ancient legend of a place known as the City of the Dead. We call it the doorway to hell. Where the earliest pharaohs were said to have hidden the wealth of Egypt. Are we going into battle? There's something out there. Something underneath that sand. They came to uncover its secrets. Mummies, my good son. This is where they made the mummies. They sought to unlock its treasure. And then there was light. Oh, boy. What they did... Oh my god, it does exist. I think this may be the Book of the Dead. ...was unleash a force unlike any the world has ever known. You must not read from the book! What the hell was that? You have unleashed a creature that we have feared for more than 3,000 years. Whoa! He will regenerate and no longer be the undead. We are in serious trouble. This work! What the occasion calls for it! Trust me! It calls for it! Universal Pictures invites you... His powers are growing. What? This just keeps getting better and better. ...to experience the adventure... It appears he's already chosen his human sacrifice. ...that will live forever. If he turns me into a mummy, you're the first one I'm coming after. Go! Mummy. 
That was a theatrical trailer for The Mummy. It is a fantasy adventure film directed by Stephen Summers, and it follows a ragtag group of treasure hunters who accidentally resurrect a long-deceased ancient Egyptian priest who will bring about the end of the world if he is not stopped. So why don't we all start off by just going around and, and saying our brief thoughts on The Mummy. Why don't you start us off, Sean? What did you think of 1999's The Mummy? I liked it. I'm a massive Egypt fan. I, I've always adored that, car, that era in history. And there are some things that this movie doesn't get exactly right, but it's all for the fun of it. It's, it takes the image of the mummy and it adds on it, and piles on all of this interesting mythology to it. Like, you've got how Imhotep simply just being back causes plagues. Like, the ten plagues. The biblical ten plagues. And you've got all of this really cool hammer horror stuff and all of these really interesting scares and effects and everything. So all of that is fascinating. And the adventure side of things, all of the gun fights, the sword fights especially, are just nice fun. It's a step down from the Matrix and all of the action scenes there, but of course it is. So it was a little bit of whiplash going into this after high-octane, incredibly choreographed stuff. The characters aren't really that, you know, interesting or engaging, but you got a nice romance with Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz. Benny is a character who sucks, and I'm glad he's dead, basically. <laughs> um, he got what he deserved. Holly put it in the perfect way when we were watching it. The servants of the pharaohs were usually buried with their masters. So, that fits. But yeah, I enjoyed it. It's a nice little Indiana Jones esque adventure, but it's not as good as Indiana Jones. I really dug it. I have a huge amount of... I'm a big fan of Brendan Fraser. I, I think he's just an intensely warm presence on screen. He's he's one of those funny action stars when he plays action roles. He's not nearly... He's such a serious character. I thought the action was quite good. It's very ambitious. And... At times, there's this sense of cosmic horror around the curse of the mummy and all of that sort of stuff. So I thought it was very successful in that regard. Overall, it's just good fun. I think it's a really fun, pulpy Indiana Jones knockoff. I mean, Stephen Summers isn't the most sophisticated of filmmakers, but he's hit on popcorn brilliance here, which he rarely approached again. I am a big fan of Van Helsing. I acknowledge it has plenty of flaws, but I love it anyway. I saw it when I was young. But other than that, Stephen Summers' track record is uh, difficult to really back for me. It's spotty. It is, up to the, the truly dismal G.I. Joe Rise of Cobra, which they inexplicably made a sequel to that was actually kind of good. But They're remaking it, you know. I know. Reboot. Well, wasn't wasn't it for years that they were going to do like a spin-off and then they were going to like try and combine it with the Transformers franchise oh, as God. like a crossover? Whatever. This is a this is a conversation for our GI Joe Rise of Cobra podcast, but we'll get to coming that. to you this fall. This isn't a horror movie. 
Let's just start off there. This no. isn't a horror movie. I mean, it is... It's an adventure. In the broad strokes of things, it is, I suppose, a remake of the... 1932 Mummy. I mean, they bring in names and things. I mean, you've got Ardeth Bay and Imhotep. But in the details, in all of the details, it is very much a different beast entirely. It is about as much a... It has about as much resemblance to the Mummy in terms of tone as, I don't know, a dubstep remix of Hallelujah would have to the original Leonard Cohen version. I'd listen to that. I wouldn't. Remember when everything was dubstep? Ugh. Yeah. It was like one of the worst points in modern musical history. I couldn't wait for that whole era to be over. That's your opinion, and you're allowed to have opinions even if they are wrong. <laughs> Moving on. But this isn't this isn't a horror movie. It's not what they're trying to do. I mean, they're bringing in the visual language and the narrative language of horror, mm. and they're using it as kind of a seasoning, I suppose, on this Indiana Jones thing. In the same way that like horror was there in the Indiana Jones films. Well, Temple of Doom, especially. Yeah. In the same way that that's there, it's just... It is. It's just a little bit of spice to give it a little something extra. And it's paying tribute to its origins, but it's also not at all trying to be scary. Not really. Yeah. And that is a, a common denominator with... Stephen Summers' general remixes of these these older stories. Like, he'd do it again in Van Helsing. Like, he brings everyone in in Van Helsing, except for the mummy, basically. He he decides that he's not going to make his extended monsterverse. He's just going to do the... He's going to do the Batman v Superman, where he brings in everyone at once. <laughs> and he's got the Wolfman and Frankenstein and Dracula and Jekyll, yeah. Dr. Jekyll, and everyone's in that. He does it all yeah. at once there. I can't see it being in the same universe. I can see it. Exactly. If you told me that they were set in the same universe, I'd believe you. Mm. They are very much of the tone, and that is the tone that he's following through in, in both of these movies, where he's not trying to make a horror movie. He's trying to make this sort of pulpy... Uh, yeah, he's just trying to tell pulp adventure stories. He's, yeah. he's doing the same kind of thing that George Lucas did with Indiana Jones and, and that Steven Spielberg did with Indiana Jones, where he's sort of emulating... The old serials, the old adventure yeah. serials that used to play in, in, in front of cinemas. And it's doing it, for the most part, pretty well. I mean, it is a knockoff of Indiana Jones in the same in, in the way that, you know, it's it's not not as good as, as that is. It doesn't have the same level of inspiration or the talent behind it, let's be perfectly honest. Stephen Summers is not Stephen Spielberg. No. I mean, they both belong to the Stephen Club, but that's about where the point that similarities end. Uh, they see they see each other at the big meetings, but they're not friends. <laughs> but, yeah, they 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 sit at the same table. They they chat to each other like once every three years, but barring that, they don't really know each other. They well, they both have membership jerseys. What gives it a distinctness, I suppose, in in the way that other Indiana Jones knockoffs like National Treasure and Tomb Raider don't, is the edge that is brought by that horror seasoning. Is yeah. the fact that you do get some pretty gruesome things here. Like, you do get the, the idea of Imhotep being sealed inside his sarcophagus, being constantly eaten alive by scarabs over, over the years. Because that's yeah. the whole th- part of the curse, is that he is alive. He, rege- he is supposed to regenerate, and then, which doesn't make a lot of sense because he's a corpse when they pull him out of there. But that is part of his, his torment that he gets eaten alive by these scarabs repeatedly. Yeah, and it's more inherently supernatural. 
then a good deal of Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones clearly has super supernatural elements. In the fourth one, we get aliens as well. But not a- Harley. I'm sorry. Interdimensional beings from the space between spaces. <laughs> well, they are alien to the planet Earth, therefore. Aliens. They are technically extraterrestrials. Oh, I can't wait for that Indiana Jones 5 that they're doing with 80-year-old Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones and the mystery of why don't my children visit me anymore. Indiana Jones and looking for my car keys (laughs) after losing my license to age. I know this is an aside, but it is interesting because one of the things that they continue to do over the Indiana Jones franchise is they had that original trilogy that was set in the 40s and so it played in the 30s and the 40s and so it played on the adventure series of the time. And then, of course, when they did Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, it moves to the 50s. So they start doing, you know, sci-fi B-movies. That's where they take their inspiration from. So if they follow that pattern, we're looking at the early 70s for the uh, the. Indiana Jones 5, and what will almost surely be the final one with Indi- with Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones. He'll be 80 when this movie comes out. So I, I want to know what inspiration they're taking it from there. Is like, what genre of the time are they going to, to try and emulate? Psychedelic. Yeah, all, yeah, exactly. All I want is to see Harrison Ford wearing a Nehru jacket just getting off his tits high. Just... At Woodstock, covered in mud, just listening to Jimi Hendrix. Well, they could also start wrapping in on some of the fantasy elements, the high fantasy stuff that kicked off in the 70s. Yeah, have him fight a dragon. Why not? King Arthur. King Arthur. There you go. Yeah, there you go. But back to the mummy. That genre element is the bit that really gives it its personality. Separate and distinct from a lot of the other... Indiana Jones tryhards during this period. And it's interesting if you look at the narrative structure, what a long build-up it is before we actually get to the mummy. I don't think the mummy actually turns up, like, alive again until, like, about the hour mark. We're about halfway through this movie before the mummy actually starts going around killing people. Up till then, we've been watching an a, a drama about an archaeological expedition. <laughs> I kind of like that. It got us situated with the characters very well. We... We came to care about... We came to know and care about the characters. We came to know more about Benny and why he would side with Imhotep, his cowardice, and all of that. We get the burgeoning relationship between Fraser and and Vice, and we get to know that the brother of Richard Vice's character is kind of like a cowardly dirtbag, but good-natured. I, I love John Hanna. He, have you guys ever seen that style show Spartacus? Bits and pieces. He's yeah. he's in the first two runs of that that they did. He plays a a Roman slave owner who swears a lot, but he's really good in. He's really good. I always like it when John John Hanna turns up. But you're right, Harley. That we do. This movie spends a lot of time establishing characters and establishing the banter and the repartee and really letting us relax into the world. It is unusual in the sense of the big dumb action movies that blockbusters tend to be in that we actually do spend a lot of time with character and with dialogue before we get to the explosions and the screaming. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I suppose you could argue how good that dialogue is. Yeah. No, it's perfectly successful. It's not awful. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, it's not like there are an action scenes. Like, you got the bit where, you know, he's fighting with the French Foreign Legion. You've got the thing on the boat where all of the magi mm. come on, and you got all those crazy fire stunts. The bit where the magi turn up again at the at the dig site. Yeah. And which also has kind of a... Was it just me, or, or did you guys get real, like, 2005 King Kong vibes from the attack on the boat? It's been a while. It's been a while since I've seen that King Kong. There's, like, real parallels there for me when I saw it from the the point where the tribesmen in King Kong board the, the boat and take Anne. I don't know, Lawson. I haven't seen King Kong 2005 since 2005. <laughs> We've got to do an episode on that. I love that movie. But I, I like I like how ambitious the movie can be. When the curses start happening, the one that particularly wowed me was the fire running down from the sky. That was a really intense moment for me. Especially you see like the fire and lightning just coming down. It's it's not it doesn't look as good as it could, but it is definitely an oh shit moment. Like the the fact that Imhotep is back is sort of like wrong on a cosmic level like this shouldn't be he shouldn't be back at all and reality is sort of like responding to it which do you think is the best depiction of the plagues prince of egypt or this prince of egypt prince of egypt don't be ridiculous like when we were when we started the mummy i didn't expect to see that sort of thing yeah and i found it really really intense i found it really engaging too how familiar were to were you two with this movie? Oh, I'd absolutely... I had seen it. Uh, it'd been a while. But it's been a long time. So I was coming in pretty much fresh. I watched this a lot when I was younger. Like, it was in big rotation for me. I rented it. I watched it on TV whenever it would air. I had the DVDs eventually. It's a good, like, training wheels for horror, maybe. Like, sure. Like, you get those movies that. that kind of have those darker, creepier elements. Like, Doctor Who is another thing that I think of as being a, a good thing, where it's sort of playing with the trappings and the narrative yeah. language of horror in such a way that is... It's like Halloween decoration horror. Yeah, you can get through it if you're not that that sort of a person, if you're a scaredy cat. But also, yeah. if, if you're a if you're of the type like us to be really interested in horror. I mean, I know that stuff like Doctor Who and The Mummy were were some of the stuff that started to get me interested in, in horror. And also, weirdly, like, crime procedurals and stuff. Every time a serial killer would turn up in one of those episodes, I'd be like, oh, that's creepy. And I, I kind of like that it's creepy, you know? It, 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 yeah. It's like you get desensitized to the more lower-level horror stuff. It's, it's like you're fighting your way through... Dracula's castle in Castlevania. All of the more basic shit is happening on the lower levels, but then as you get further, you just start to get desensitized to like the werewolves and the vampires and the zombies and shit. Where you just need a little bit more pop. Yeah. Whenever we watch something, especially the stuff for the podcast that has horror elements or supernatural elements, I try to sort of rewire my brain into thinking of how this how I would react if this was actually happening Mm. for example Imhotep's resurrection begins the start of the end of the world and I putting myself into that sort of situation I find it really the horror really successful in that regard 
it it never feels like especially the plague of boils and sores and how all the people afflicted come to serve in Imhotep that's really really successful for me because I never expected to see it 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 was a constant surprise and up one upping of the previous yeah you know, curse. And, and they also sort of even, like, pull in some sort of zombie imagery there, too. With yeah, they do. The, mm-hmm. the masses that Emotep has brainwashed and the, the sort of Emotep, Emotep way that they go about these things. Yeah. Yeah. And he kind of pulls, like, a Dracula when he's up in that window and he spreads the cloak real wide and his mouth goes real long. The CGI on Emotep has aged terribly. Yeah. Mm. But, I mean, think of it for the time, though. Yeah, but, like, not to get ahead of ourselves, but I just rewatched some other CGI-heavy stuff from from that same year, and we just came off The Matrix, and it's just like, you know, it could have been better. I mean, let's face it, though, they weren't getting... Anywhere near the money of, like, sure. Star Wars or The Matrix. But I feel like, like, there's this whole bit in the special features, the documentaries of how they, they made the mummy, where Stephen Summers is talking about the the servant mummies, the priest mummies that pop up at the end that yeah. they fight. And he's talking about, you know, we wanted... This wasn't your, your, your parents' mummy. We wanted to have this CGI mummy that looks really real and really frightening. And then, because people would laugh at it if it was a guy in bandages. And, and it was all goofy and silly when it was a guy in bandages. So we put that in there as a joke that everyone can sort of, you know, everyone can go, oh, I remember them. But then we've also got the CGI warrior mummies who are so much more scary than the, the priest mummies. And I'm like, but but the priest mummies are the most effective villains in the yeah. whole movie because they're practical because they are actual guys shambling around and it, they only stop being effective when they start doing goofy things in in the sort of brendan fraser fight stuff where they have to become cg to have you know the, they're sort of mini- being chopped into pieces and stuff by yeah. by brendan fraser that's when they start looking bad but when they're actually you know getting up and running after everyone that that's the most effective look of any of these creatures yeah and it's a cool way that they where that imhotep you know raises them back from the dead how they like come out of the walls because the backstory of it is imhotep and the pharaoh's wife or pharaoh's mistress were in love yeah that's that's a whole thing not good optics um for an ancient pharaoh but anyway so the whole thing is all of the people who helped him Hotep with all of his resurrection stuff to try and you know resurrect it from the dead, all of them got mummified alongside him and like put in the walls and everything. And when they do rise up, they come out of the walls and they bow to Imhotep and Imhotep bows to them. Like he shows deference to them. I've got to say, bad idea to have this curse on him. Like, absolutely. Imhotep's priests were condemned to be mummified alive. As for Imhotep, he was condemned to endure the Hongdai, the worst of all ancient curses, one so horrible it had never before been bestowed. He was to remain sealed inside his sarcophagus, the undead for all of eternity. 
The Magi would never allow him to be released, for he would arise a walking disease, a plague upon mankind, an unholy flesh-eater with the strength of ages, power over the sands, and the glory of invincibility. You want the guy to suffer in death. All right, fine. But is it really worth the risk? Like, this is a very intensive upkeep on this curse, that yeah. they've got to keep this station of guys watching his tomb just in case, because if anyone accidentally comes and wakes him up, the end of the world's going to happen. Like, that's a big trade-off for some spiteful post-death torture right there. And, and, and after you do all of that torture stuff, you go home, you go to bed, you wake up the next day, and what do you have? Exactly. What do you have, honestly? It, it's it's like nothing. We were talking about this while we were watching the movie, and it's like, why not just kill him and put his body out in the desert to, to just rot? It is high risk, low reward. You know, just put him in the sarcophagus with the scarabs and just call it a day. Exactly. Like, do you really need to do the resur- resurrection curse? That seems like you. it's too much of a risk, really. Like, There's a reason there's only one recorded... Mo- moment of it happening, it's because no one wants world-ending mummies running around. I don't know if this is something that, well, I'm almost certain this is something that only I do, but when I watch these, like, fantastical things, when I watch movies where really insane stuff happens, I sometimes wonder what, in this world, the Wikipedia page for that event looks like. Yes! And I kind of wonder, I kind of, like, I think, you know, what does, obviously the mummy stuff doesn't make it public, but what what does history make of that particular night in Egypt when fire started to rain from the sky? And, and there was an eclipse and all yeah, that. And a riot and locusts and things, you know. I, I, that is kind of, a, of an interesting thing you, that I, I kind of think about when I, when I look at that stuff. Yeah, yeah. As all of that stuff was happening, I'm like, this is going to be in the news, right? Like this is going to be in a paper. What if this was a biopic instead of a <laughs> of a fantasy? Yeah, movie? that kind of thing. I I I agree. I like seeing trying to look beyond just the event and into how the wider world is going to react. Like with all of the stuff with like people going up. It's it's the Ghostbusters thing of hmm. the end of Ghostbusters. Almost everyone in the city is watching this happen. Yeah. That's the thing that pisses me off watching the the trailer for the new one, which looks otherwise pretty good. Mm. But you have this stuff at the end that in that trailer where we're supposed to believe that in this universe where ghosts are real and publicly came to life on live television in New York twice, and, twice, and the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man was marching through the streets, Stepped we're on supposed a to believe that in this world preteens don't know that ghosts are real or that the Ghostbusters existed. Get real. The Stay Puft Marshmallow Man would be, like... You... He, he would exist in New Yorkers' nightmares. Exactly. That would be like... It would be like in Germany after World War Two. That would be like a a, a a ban on any any imagery of the Stay Puft Marshmallow exactly. Man. Exactly. Like, and then you have Lady Liberty smashing through the pink jello shit mm. in Ghostbusters 2. Like, obviously people don't know the Vigo of it, but still. You can't? Yeah, it's that whole thing of... You got that one kid in the second Ghostbusters movie who's like, my dad says you all frauds, and it's like, I'm sorry, I'll show you a thousand people who can verify that, in fact, this did happen. 
you know what? You know that would be real, at least on some small scale. You know, they're all crisis actors, Sean. It's like, if you've got people in the real world, you know, harassing the parents of, of deceased children who died in school shootings because they think believe in a conspiracy theory that it never actually happened and it's actually just Obama's excuse for taking people's guns. If you've got those people in real life, you think that there wouldn't be those people if a giant marshmallow man started walking through New York? The, the school shooter isn't a hundred feet tall and wearing a sailor's outfit. But that makes it even more difficult to believe it was a giant marshmallow. I guess. Anywho, let's talk a little bit about Brendan Fraser. Hmm. Okay. I I like it whenever I see him and stuff. And he is such a... Even in stuff that's as dumb as Encino Man, which is a very dumb movie, he has this really sort of joyful presence on screen. Like... He's not miserable, even as Rick O'Connell, he's he's having as much fun as he wants the audience to have. Yeah. Which is so great, which was so great to see when he got the role of Robot Man uh, in Titans and Doom Patrol, and really makes me really pissed off to know what happened to him. Yeah. To kick him out of the limelight. The general abandonment of people like Brandon Fraser and Terry Crews in the Me Too era after what happened to them. You know, just the fact that no one seems to care when they said that stuff. I don't I don't know what it is, whether whether they just weren't big enough names at a time where where bigger names were, were talking about those experiences or whether whether it was the fact that they were men who were abused by men or whether it was the fact that they're Terry Crews and Brendan Fraser and there's some subconscious thing in the culture where a misogynistic thing subconscious thing in the culture where we find it easier to view women as the victims of sleazebag men than we do people like Brendan Fraser and Terry Crews, who look like... Adonises. Yeah, I don't know. But it, it really is just awful the way that, that the world in general just seemed to react with a shrug when we actually found yeah. out about well, that stuff. I I sort of read into the to what happened with Brendan Fraser and the incident where he was harassed happened in 2003 and at that point he was also going through a lot of family issues yeah he, he was getting divorced at the time wasn't he he was getting divorced at the time his mother had passed away around that time and he tried talking out about speaking out about what happened to him at that time and that's when he was blackballed yeah uh, by the industry which is just awful to happen to anybody and it came at like a, a a point where he was starting to get into a bit of a fallow period as well. Like he couldn't really, like like they were. He was at a weak point in his in his career already, so he made an easy target to shoot down. Mm. Two thousand three was not a really good year for him. I mean, that was Dickie Roberts' former child star as an uncredited cameo and Looney Tunes back in action, which is like an infamous box office bomb. And and really, like if you look at his filmography. He does crash in 2004, which he has a sporting role in, but then he doesn't work again until 2006. Yeah. He had, he had kind of a big comeback year in 2008 uh, with uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth, The Mummy, Tomb of the Dragon Emperor, and Inkheart. But yeah, yeah. none of those really blew the doors off. No, Ink, Inkheart didn't really. And, and then he sort of dropped off from there into a lot of TV stuff. Mm. But now that Brendan Fraser is back in Doom Patrol and fantastic in that. I have seen a couple of stories from 
yesterday, actually, when we watched The Mummy, in another piece of serendipitous coincidence, that people are looking into doing a series, television series, with all of the actors back. I did see something about that, yes. Which I'd be excited to see. I I think it'd be really interesting, personally. I agree. Because I think that whenever Brendan Fraser is on screen, he's magnetic. So this this rumour is coming from we got this covered. So take that with a huge grain of salt. Like a truck full of salt, really. Yeah, that's why that's why I was emphasizing rumor and as much as I'd like to see it, if we got discovered is covering it, it's probably not true. <laughs> um they don't have it covered. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, some of the other actors I I think the actor who plays him Hotep. Arnold Vosloo. Yes. He makes it work. He does. E- even the bits with the spotty CGI on his face at times, he still there's a there's a strange stillness to it. Yeah, he's a menacing figure. He's he's actually menacing. Yeah, and even and when he's just standing there, you're feeling this energy coming off him. Of don't want to mess with this fella. Even when he even in the little you know prologue thing, I wouldn't mess with that guy. And you can see that on those painted gold blokes, they don't want to mess with him either. Because he could take out a few of them before they get the upper hand. In in the... A little bit on the character of Rick O'Connell, he's not nearly as roguish as I initially expected him to be. Uh, Indiana, Indiana Jones is a lot more prickly. Mm. Yeah. He's closer to Nathan Drake than he is to Indiana Jones. Sure. Yeah, he yeah. definitely is. He's got is. A, softer, a softer vibe to him. Yeah, because yeah, Indiana Jones is a bit of an asshole. Shout out to that throwaway line in Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark when it's revealed that he had a relationship with Marianne while he was an adult and she was under the age of consent. I need one of the pieces your father collected. I learned to hate you in the last ten years. I never meant to hurt you. I was a child. I was in love. He was wrong and you knew it. You knew what you were doing. Hey, George. Yikes. That's why her father fell out with him. <laughs> That's well, explicitly go. stated in that scene in the bar. But, yeah. Yeah. Now that I've ruined Indiana Jones for everyone. <laughs> Cancel yeah. Indiana Jones. Hashtag. Well, even Han Solo is also that sort of roguish, mm. rakish figure as well. Yeah, but he hasn't committed a sex crime. <laughs> no, but... Mm, Rick O'Connell isn't... We get that. what you're saying. He, he isn't... Yes. He is not an anti-hero in the way that those characters can sometimes yeah. be. There's sort of like a general, like, I don't know, a sarcasm and a, and a, a, there's a, there's a barrier between them and the other characters around them that Rick O'Connell doesn't really have. Yeah, Rick doesn't have to be cajoled into doing the right thing. No. Like, like he's not going for the treasure, really. He's just going to help these people because they saved his life. Mm. Yeah, and while Rick is snide and sardonic at parts, he warms up to people, and people warm up to him a lot quicker. Yeah. He is much more genuine with them. And also, when when danger happens, he just snaps right into business. Because he's a soldier. he's He just gets right into, I know what I have to do. This is what we have to do. You guys stay here, protect her. I'm going to go and find Benny and all of this stuff. And it's... 
he he's roguish, but he's not a dick like Han Solo is, who has to be convinced to help. Well, Han Solo, I I I, I don't know. It might be being a little too harsh on Han Solo. I mean, yeah, it's it is a little too harsh, but like but that's the character archetype. Yeah, yeah, he's not outwardly heroic. He starts the m- movie as a smuggler, just as one of the most smuggler. And over the course of three films, four films, technically, five films, you see him go from self-centered to someone who's willing to lay down his life. And O'Connell starts the film and remains that for the majority of the film, for all of the film. And this is sort of the big breakout movie for Rachel Weisz as well, Mm. that this is, I think she's like 29 when this movie comes out. So this is her first like big break in the mainstream. It's, it's what got her a lot of attention. And she's very good in it too. She brings a kind of peppy energy to the whole thing. I particularly like the scene at the start in the library when she's trying to put the book away and she goes, like, leans back too far onto the ladder. It's like... And watching that in high definition and seeing Rachel Weisz get swapped out for what is clearly a man in a dress and a wig. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's got, that got a laugh out of me. Yeah. And then all the things, all the shelves get knocked over. Like dominoes. In a long take. To, that was impressive. They, well, uh, they put work yeah. behind Well, that. apparently that was the one take they had of that. Because if they had to do it again, it would have taken half a day to set up. Yeah. Yeah. You gotta get that right the first time. You have to have the measurements down. No, but yeah, she she comes in with a lot of great energy and just a childish passion for Egypt and adventure and all of this stuff. She's smart too, and she's ferocious in her own right. Like she's not like she's not like Willie in Indiana Jones at the Temple of Doom, who just God no, Jesus Christ no. She she has agency that is is makes her a, a stronger character in her own right. Yeah. She's not always just screaming. Yeah, and she has talents that other characters yeah. don't have. And that it's actually John Hannah's character as as Jonathan who kind of fulfills the role of the 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 scaredy cat damsel in distress kind of of stereotype where he's terrified of everything. And then of course we should probably talk about Benny. Yes, Benny, Benny, bane of my life, Benny. One of the worst comic relief characters in the history of cinema. One of the most annoying screen presences ever, pay- played by Kevin J. O'Connor, who Summers insists on using in everything that he can, and always playing the same type of character. He's a traitor. Well, not even necessarily, but just his general, like, <laughs> whininess, and that he's supposed to be funny, but he isn't at all. Ah, what a surprise! My good friend, you're alive! I was so very, very worried. Well, if it ain't my little buddy Benny, I think I'll kill you. Think of my children. You don't have any children. Someday I might. Shut up. I mean, I talked about Deep Rising a few years back, which was Stephen Summers' first film. Not years back. <laughs> weeks back. have been doing this for a year. But yeah, I talked about Deep Rising a few weeks back, which was Stephen Summers' first movie, the, the the monster movie on the cruise liner. And Kevin J. O'Connor's in that too as an incredibly annoying character. And then he pops up again in Van Helsing as sort of the Igor character, who's equally annoying. 
and and he's just playing. He's just being asked to play this same annoying, whiny guy with the same like grating nasal high pitched voice in each one. There's one scene from him that is actually fantastic, and that's when Imhotep stands in front of him and he's like got all these different yeah, like religious symbols. One, yeah. And he's praying in all these different languages. Then when he gets to the Star of David and starts praying in Hebrew, Imhotep stops and goes, Ah, the language of the slaves. Yeah. Minsa, good Lord, protect and watch over me as a shepherd watches over his flock. That that is one of the moments where I'll well, I'll grant you that he works. Like I, I got, I get a laugh out of that. That he, he, he just has all of these different religious artifacts from different religions, and he just goes through the religions one at a time until he finds the one that works on this particular monster. Yeah, like at the moment Imhotep said the language of the slaves, I was like, oh shit. Yeah, ma- ma- major demerit to this movie for for the simple inclusion of Benny as as a presence. I wanted to see him get crushed by the the descending roof. Nah, that would have been too gruesome. I think. Yeah, they they walk the line a lot on what they show and what they don't. Uh, obviously, they're trying to keep it a PG thirteen in America, and you get that a lot. You get that when when the jailer gets eaten from the inside by the scarab. You know, he runs into the wall and that's what kills him. We, we don't get that. You still gotta have fun. Yeah. We don't, with it. we don't get gore in this movie. Which I think is a, is a real saving grace. If there were- We get close. Well, yeah, but like, we don't see the acts of violence really. Like when we, when we see the curator get torn apart by all of the, the zombie people, we don't see it happen. We just see the swarm and hear the screaming. Like, they take care to imply rather than show any act of extreme violence. Mm. I mean, the closest we actually get on screen is uh, bloodless gunshots and bloodless stabbing. Yeah. Uh, I like the moment when Imhotep goes after one of the Americans. It's the American who stayed in the room to guard Rachel Weiss. And he gets, like, lifted up into the air by the sand, and then it, like, spins around him, emaciating him, and you just see the shadow. And, like, stuff like that really reminds me of the the original Mummy film, because with the original Mummy film, there was an emphasis on shadow, and, and, and acts of violence committed in shadow. And that was a really cool way... Those uses of shadow were really cool ways of doing it. And that was, like, a... a- one of the creepier moments also is when he goes to find the American in the whose uh, whose eyes and tongue he's he's taken in the hotel, and he's being introduced as this prince, and then the reveal over the course of the scene, you know. 
Mr. Burns. Prince Imhotep thanks you for your hospitality. Yeah. And for your eyes. And for your tongue. What? But I'm afraid more is needed. What? The prince must finish the job and consummate the curse which you and your friends have brought down upon yourselves. The gradual panic of this guy as he realizes who's sitting across from him. I, I, that's effective, like psychologically. Yeah. Yeah. Because this guy has already had his tongue and his eyes ripped out. After seeing the most horrifying thing he's ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. So that image is like stuck in his mind. The fact that he's not just screaming is amazing to me. I gotta say though, how goofy and stupid is it that his weakness is cats? It's not that it's his weakness, it's that it freaks him it's out. Real foolish. Like like it just it Yeah. It's almost comedic, like when Rachel Wise runs in and throws a cat at him. <laughs> Like, and he goes, ah, and runs away. I mean... I would love to see the crazy cat lady from The Simpsons go up against him. Just, like, chucks a cat. Just having strapped down Clockwork Orange style watching the feature film Cats. (laughs) (laughs) He'd be more terrified of it than I am. A little bit... Let's talk a little bit about the CGI on the mummy himself. His sort of decomposed form, uh, and how it progresses into, you know, him recovering his full human appearance. There are bits that look better than others, I think. Some of the stuff where just his the bottom half of his like face, or the rotted bit, don't feel quite as right as some of the earlier fully decomposed bits look. Well, it's more of a complete image. They're not having to blend practical elements with digital elements in the way that they are when he's starting to recompose. But I actually think the opposite. I actually think that when he's fully animated, it shows the digital sheen a lot more to me. I feel like when you've got Vosloo there and he's still got... I mean, yeah, not so much like when he's still missing half of his face, but when he's just got like the the, the holes in his cheek and, and the general sallow mm. complexion, like that stuff really works for me. I, I love the, the, the bit with the the bit with the scarab yes. crawling into the cheek, and then he eats it. I was just gonna say, I love that beat. Yeah, uh, I I like I also like the bit where they go find the air captain. Oh, he was an absolute legend. He just wanders into this movie at the two thirds mark to be introduced in a rambling monologue that makes you wonder why are we spending any time with this guy just so he can come back for another scene and then get killed in his third scene. See, what's great about that character is he's this sort of death-seeking warrior. Like, he doesn't want to die by his own hands. He wants to die historic on the Fury Road. I'm the last of the Royal Air Corps still stationed out here, you know. what? Some bloody idiot spilt his drink. All the other ladders died in the sky and were buried in the sand. Good chaps, every one of them, too. Oh, oh. oh hey, Winston. Yeah. Now, you know, O'Connell, ever since the end of the Great War, there hasn't been a, a single challenge worthy of a man like me. Yeah, but we all got our little problems today, don't we, Winston? I just wish I could have 
chucked it in with the others and gone down in flame and glory instead of sitting around here rotting of boredom and booze. Cheers. Mm. Mm. Oh well, back to the airfield. <laughs> he's in and out of the movie in 15 minutes and hes it's just like the most... It, I mean, it's clumsy. Let's be perfectly honest here. The, the narrative heavy lifting that the movie goes through to be like, hey, here's this guy. You, he's important and you should care about him because we're going to give him a hero's death 15 minutes from now and play sad music as he sinks into quicksand. It's barely a hero's death, though, isn't it? Well, but you, you get what I, what I mean. It's kind of like... Only by the grace of God do they survive in that plane I, crash. I, I like him and I like the... The, the actor's performance especially, but uh, a more polished script would have introduced him in the first act when they're still back at the city Absolutely. before they head out. Or they would have just made him part of the, the troop from the beginning. Yeah. That would have had more impact if actually a member of the group that had been with them from the start had died at any point. Yeah. I just love how he comes in like a whirlwind, just full of pep and energy... And he, he's gone just as quickly. The brightest stars shine the quickest. What a character that... what a, He's a character that works by the idea of burning the candle at both ends. And also, that scene's really impressive with the whole sand face thing. Yeah. I mean, that's the iconic image from the movie, is, is that yeah. whole bit. Although... I do feel kind of bad for Arnold Vosloo. I do get a bit of a laugh out of it when it cuts back to him on the ground, acting out what the sand's doing, and he's just got that gaping, like, star face as he's, as he's like, here comes the aeroplane. <laughs> I had a look at the trivia for Stephen Summers, and that sandstorm scene in particular is indicative of this piece of trivia. Industrial Light and Magic jokingly created the Stephen Summers scale to measure the extent of digital effects used in a given movie scene. The four parts of the scale from lowest to highest are what the shot needs, what the computers can handle, oh my god, the computers are about to crash, and finally, what Stephen Summers wants. And especially back then, something like that sandstorm is really, is still really impressive. Yeah. It's a big effect. There were a lot of really big effects in this film. Like, you've got that entire establishing shot of Egypt back in the past when, you know, Imhotep is still walking around as a flesh boy. And you've got here, you've got all of this Titanic-esque CGI where you can obviously that some of the people aren't real, but some of them are, and it's very obvious which ones are which. I I just think... The ambition of the movie is something to be appreciated. Absolutely. Well, there's not really anything in the IMDb Parents Guide of note. I mean, the closest that we get here is the the rather blunt way in which the 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 person who edited this notes that Benny angrily knees Rick on his balls. Uh, how, how how do we feel about Rick kicking a mummy in the nads? How does that work? The mummy doesn't have genitals anymore. I feel like he'd be past caring at that point, yeah. But still, it's like, still not nice. It's not cricket, but still. Like, he's in a fight for his life. I do love that fight, that sword fight with the mummies and stuff. That was, it's ju- that was just a nice little bit of fun, wasn't it? 
I know that you liked it, Harley. Yeah, I really did. Very David and the Argonauts with the skeletons and things. Jason, Jason and the Argonauts, and the Argonauts. Now I'm just imagining Jason, the, the story of Jason and the Argonauts, but it's David Arquette. <laughs> so why don't we all go around just to, to wrap this up and say what each of our favourites scene or sequence was and who our MVP was. I will start us off and say that my MVP is probably Brandon Fraser. He's just such a warm, bright element of this movie that, that makes it enjoyable. It makes it comfortable and cosy. You're sort of, you're being told this adventure yarn by professionals who have real charisma and, and a good rapport with, with the camera. And, he really epitomizes that, in my opinion. In terms of my favorite scene or sequence, that's a kind of a rough one. Um, but I think I'm probably going to have to cheat a little bit and say that it's a lot of the, the stuff of Imhotep's attack on the city, specifically from the moment that he he starts to taunt the guy that he took the eyes and tongue from through to probably their their escape from the city. But... That is cheating a bit, but but really, there's no real specific tight moment here that stands out to me more than that does. How about you? I, I'll give it to Stephen Summers, because that it, there is such a Castlevania-esque love of horror iconography, not necessarily doing it in a scary way, but in, as I said earlier, more of a Halloween decoration, haunted house, monster mash kind of thing, where it's using the images of horror, like spooky skeletons and mummies and all of that, but it's just for the fun of it. It's for the aesthetic. It's While the movie does want to, does seem to imply some horror stuff... It is more interested in the adventurous nature that can come from horror storytelling. And that's to the movie's benefit. And he's got a fantastic vision for that kind of thing, as we would see in Van Helsing, which is, even more than this, a crystallization of that aesthetic and taking it to its logical extreme. With, as Lawson said, his Dawn of Justice-esque mishmash of, you know, Frankenstein's monster and Dracula and the Wolfman and all of that. So I'll give it to Summers. I think my favorite scene, I'm not sure. It's difficult because probably when they get back to the City of the Dead and, you know, all of the running around, fighting the zombies, mummies, sorry... Fighting the mummies, you've got all of the stuff with that one guy from the Magi who's helping them. He's an absolute boss. And he he survives in the end, which I honestly did not expect. But yeah, all of that stuff, the fighting with the mummies, fighting with Imhotep, all of that stuff is just cool. And I loved seeing the immortality get snatched out of him. That was a cool sort of interesting bit of mythology there that... The immortality aspect, the power aspect of him, is its own being, I guess. Um, I have to say that my MVP is Brendan Fraser. Like Lawson said, he just brings that warmth and assuredness to the role. It's really good whenever you see him in something, because you know you're in for a fun time. 
Encino Man not included. I don't like Encino Man at all. But, yeah, I I like seeing him, seeing him when he's in stuff, and I'm really glad that his career's picking up again, considering what he went through when his career was on a downturn. My favorite scene has to be, like, when he has the sword and he's fighting the mummies. Yeah. It, it's just cool. There are some goofy bits, like people's head, mummies' heads getting knocked into other mummies, that sort of thing. But it's Brendan Fraser fighting mummies, and that will never not be cool to me. Yeah, it's all for a laugh. It's just fun. Don't think about it too much kind of thing. Yeah. So, Lawson, what have we got next week? Well, of course, last week we talked about three movies in one. We talked about the Matrix trilogy because it was one important, complete story that's all interconnected with each other. So next week we will be returning to that format, but on a much larger scale, we will be starting a mini-series next week, which will go across three episodes, each addressing a trilogy of the Star Wars franchise. Next week we will be starting with the prequel trilogy. We will be talking about The Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, and Revenge of the Sith. The week after that, we will be talking about A New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi, that, of course, comprising the original trilogy. And then we will be concluding this miniseries the week after that with a discussion of the sequel trilogy, The Force Awakens, The Last Jedi, and Rise of Skywalker. So we will be uh, starting that journey next week if you would like to follow along. Of course, they are all available for streaming on Disney+. Plus. Comment, like, subscribe. When you comment, it's for the show on the whole. If you want to talk about specific feedback for any particular episode or moment in an episode, or just, you know, chat with us, you can contact us through our Twitter. You can find Lawson at his blog, Exit Through the Candy Counter. You can find John and I at our blog, at On the Bright Side, each of those links is in the description wherever it appears on your podcast app of choice. Share with friends, which is always a nice thing. And yeah, that's that's my spiel. I have been Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been, and I will continue to be Jean Lewis. Imhotep. 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 Slight feet up the street, bend your back, shift your arm, then you pull it back. Let's hard, you know. Egyptian.